0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, well, we focus on the history of warfare from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. In this episode, we're looking at the history of Al-Qaeda. At a time when the war in Afghanistan is drawing to a close, for Western forces at least, as the withdrawal continues, we are looking back at the history of that conflict and the point at which it started. Of course, next month it is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and so the attacks of 9-11 on the Twin Towers, on the Pentagon, they lead to this invasion of Afghanistan in pursuit of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is said to be being guarded in a safe haven by the Taliban. And so the two really combine here at this point in history where one war on terror in Afghanistan draws to an end as we mark that 20th anniversary. And so it seems like the right time for us to visit this history of Al-Qaeda. And we have the right person to talk about it. We have my good friend Afi Ashraf. Now, he has spent over 30 years in the UK Armed Forces as a senior officer. He served in Iraq as a counterinsurgency and political specialist and in Afghanistan as an inter-security advisor to the Ministry of the Interior. He is one of the world's leading experts on Afghanistan. He wrote his PhD on the history of Al-Qaeda. He is the perfect person to take us through this. So here is Dr. Afzal Ashraf on Al-Qaeda. Hi, Affy. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, James. Lovely to see you. Yeah, great to see you again. Great to talk. I think the last time I saw you is when we were in Denmark at a military transformations conference. And I think I was giving a lecture on drones and spying drones, and then one ominously appeared outside the window. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes, I remember that well. (laughs) I'm pretty convinced you set that one up. Yes, that was very interesting.
1: (laughs) I wish I had. That would have been cool. It would have been a little bit of showmanship of having some, I don't know, Russian or Chinese spying drone flying out the window watching us. But I mean, we're not that secret and we're not that spooky. So I'm sure it was just somebody, um, I don't know, doing some architecture or some surveying. Now we're not here to talk about drones, well not directly today I suppose, we're here to talk about Al-Qaeda, your specialist topic. So can you give us a little history of Al-Qaeda, because of course when we think about them we think about those who perpetrated the attacks of 9-11 in 2001, 20 years ago, and of course we think about the war on terror against them after that seminal, pivotal moment in time. But where does Al-Qaeda emerge from?
2: Well, al-Qaeda emerges really in the sense that we know it in the late 90s, and it emerges for a number of reasons. One is that bin Laden, who had disappeared back to Saudi Arabia after the war in Afghanistan, started to misbehave, according to the king, because he wasn't very happy with the way the first Gulf War was being fought, supported by the king of Saudi Arabia and really he was indirectly paying and supporting the American-led coalition. And he warned at the outset of the war that the Americans, uh, the West in general, will use this as an excuse to occupy Muslim lands and will uh, use as a pretext to steal what he described as Muslim wealth. And two and a half years after the Americans evicted uh, Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, exactly what bin Laden had predicted happened, or it seemed to have happened. One thing was that the massive base in Dharan that the Americans had created was actually being expanded. Another thing was that the Saudis went through a virtual bankruptcy because, in the words of Secretary of State Baker, the Saudis paid for the war and some. And so what you had was what, by Western standards, is a mild form of austerity. But that resulted in a very mild form of protest by Western standards. But that was still too much for the Saudis. And they clamped down and they actually imprisoned a lot of the religious clerics who were leading the sort of protest. And it was not demonstrations like we know them, but just, you know, speeches and maybe the odd sermon saying, look, you know, we need to look after the poor in Saudi Arabia and that sort of stuff. And anyhow, this made bin Laden very angry. He wrote a very rude letter to the king, and the king decided that because he was the son of a very well-respected family man, his father, they would just ask him to leave the country rather than be punished appropriately. So he went into exile in Sudan, and in Sudan, whilst he was there, Bill Clinton authorised several attacks on the country, one of which was against that very dangerous target a milk processing factory it was a powder milk for children factory, which was allegedly supposed to be a chemical weapons plant. And of course, it wasn't in reality. The Sudanese government got the message. They asked Bin Laden to disappear. And the only place he could go was Afghanistan, where he was given political asylum. And I think that term is really important to understand. Not many Westerners do. The idea of asylum is a very important idea in Pashtunwali the ancient code that the Pashtuns and most of the Afghans live by. So he was given political asylum in Afghanistan, but he spent a lot of the time in those days, late 90s, going across the border to Pakistan and places like that. And it was there that he had this conference of like-minded individuals, including Ayman al-Zwahiri and other uh, leaders of the sort of bands of brothers that comprise the Islamist extremist movement. Now, Islamism, just for reference, is a French term which uh, talks about Islam as primarily a political construct and not primarily a theological construct, which is how most people understand the religion. So they brought this band of brothers together, so to speak, and declared war on the West. Now, the objective of doing that was As Bin Laden later explained, and this is really key to understand, the objective of doing that was a realisation amongst these various extremist groups spread across North Africa, the Middle East and elsewhere, that their attempts to get rid of what they saw as oppressive and unjust governments was failing. Now, there's a very good reason for this oppression and this injustice, and it's all to do with the Cold War, but there was this very widespread belief in oppression and injustice by the so-called Muslim governments, and that was partly because, or very largely because, they were working for one of the superpowers, primarily the West, and they had failed to remove them. And bin Laden very intelligently, if you like, not intelligently enough, but intelligently reasoned that... The reason they were failing to replace these people was because they were being propped up by the West. And so he said these so called Islamic governments or Muslim governments, which are not Islamic in his understanding of the term, this near enemy, as he described them, these so called Islamic governments, can only be changed if their supporters, the far enemy, the US primarily, is coerced into leaving these Muslim countries. And he further reasoned that if you look at what happened in Somalia, in Beirut, and indeed in Vietnam before that, every time the Americans are attacked, they run away. That was his reasoning. So this sparked off a series of high-profile attacks against American interests. The first was the twin embassy bombings in East Africa, where Again, a lot of people don't appreciate this, particularly in Uganda. The embassy was the CIA's regional hub of operations in that area, some of which had been directed against the al-Qaeda organization or members of that organization. And the uh, SS Cole, the U.S. Navy ship coal, which was attacked by a suicide bomb, attack, resulting in 17 deaths of sailors, and that was in 2000. And ultimately, in 2001, as we know, nine eleven. So these increasingly spectacular attacks.
1: So the aim here then, Afi, was very much a political one. It was one to drive the US out of these regions to reduce their areas of control and to allow for more of a Islamic self governance in those regions that isn't dominated by Western politics and perhaps the forces of global capitalism, I guess, as well, as that's the victory at the end of the Cold War. This is fascinating to me because they turn towards this idea that's very popular at that period of time the idea that we have the time and you have the watches, the idea that the US and the West can't sustain in areas for very long. When the casualties start to mount, it's something that Saddam Hussein had betted on himself. He said that America is a country that can't handle 10,000 deaths in one battle, and this will be the mother of all battles. Now, it didn't work for him when it came down to the first Gulf War, so how much was this working for Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden after their initial attacks before 9 11?
2: Well, that's a very interesting point you make. And there's many things around what you've said that really deserve a great deal more thought than we have time to consider. But you're really pointing to conceptions and how people see themselves and each other. And one of the flaws in bin Laden's argument, and indeed also in Saddam Hussein's argument, as you mention it, was that they had failed to understand that Vietnam... The situation in Somalia and Beirut were fundamentally different for the Americans. They were wars of choice. And Western liberal democracies have used more violence in the history of mankind than any other type of system when they are directly attacked. So those are wars of necessity. So when, of course, the analogy that bin Laden and Saddam Hussein failed to understand was the analogy of Pearl Harbor and the analogy of other instances in the First and Second World War when Western liberal democracies were attacked. They never give up. They fight and they use more violence than any other form of governance, including the communists, have ever used. The communists have tended to kill more of their own people than they have foreigners. The Western liberal democracies have killed more foreigners than their own people. And that's a very uncomfortable truth for the Westerners, let alone for people like bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. The other thing I think is worth just, at the risk of picking holes, but it is important to remember this idea of you have the time and we have the watches, is not an Islamist idea. It is very much a Pashtun idea. And that is informed, as in most cases, and what we're really jumping into now is what I would describe as security culture. And security culture, military culture is particular to different nations, different peoples, and it's informed by history. And so this idea of watches and time is informed by Afghan history, which goes back And indeed, I can give you a wonderful quote from Alexander the Great. I'm not quoting verbatim. These are unruly people that you can suppress for a short time, but you can never defeat, is essentially what he was saying. But of course, the Anglo-Afghan wars of the 19th century and then, of course, in the 20th century have reinforced this cultural belief. So I think it's important to not attribute this claim to al-Qaeda. I've never come across it being made by Al Qaeda, certainly not during the time of Bin Laden, when I was reading everything he said and Imams Wahabi said.
1: There were similar claims, I think, made or analogies, at least, by uh, Ho Chi Minh in the Vietnam War as well. The idea that you know there is time in America. Well, it doesn't have the time on its side and can't handle those costs. But how does this work into 9/11 then? Because that isn't an attack that's in sudan or in kenya in tanzania it's not in a part of the world where the us is projecting its power this is downtown new york city this is the pentagon in the heart of washington dc this is also aiming potentially so we're told for attacks on the white house as well what is the aim behind this attack if it isn't about stirring the hornet's nest
2: well, I think the aim was not to stir the hornet's nest. And this is where, if you like, the miscalculations that al-Qaeda made come to the fore. The aim was to frighten the Americans into thinking, wow. I mean, there was just before nine eleven. just step back a little bit. In the years immediately before, about five years before, there was a concept that people have forgotten that was doing the rounds in terrorism and even indeed in the wider international relations community. And that was a concept of super-terrorism. So there were attacks, highly spectacular attacks. Uh, Timothy McVeigh's attack in Oklahoma. You had the Omshiriko attack, Sarin gas attack in Tokyo, and indeed the Twin Embassy bombings in 1998, I think it was or ninety nine. Those attacks came... Fairly close to each other from very diverse locations, in very diverse locations, with very diverse motivations. And people were trying to make sense of this trend. In fact, I was commissioned by PJQ, the Permanent Joint Headquarters, to write my master's dissertation on the idea of superterrorism. Now, what we were seeing there is not an ideological, if you like, change, because there is no ideology associated with terrorism, is a tactic. What we're seeing is a very important feature of terrorism of any kind. Terror is intended to terrorize the target audience and to frighten them to the extent that they can be coerced. Now, this fear thing is a bit like adrenaline if you like you know the adrenaline junkies they have to push the threshold further and further to get the same level of fix well in order for terrorism to grab people's attention which is really what he was supposed to do and to give them sufficient fear and to act as a coercive capability you needed to keep upping the ante the simultaneous attacks and twin embassy bombings the attack on a warship which kills people and which was supposed to sink the ship had failed to do so, but also this almost freeing of the imagination. And again, I can't remember the exact quote from uh, Conrad's book, The Secret Agent, but I think he uses this almost 100 years earlier, something along the lines of an act so unimaginably horrific that it stuns the audience, and those aren't the words that Conrad uses, but it is this idea of unimaginable horror which we see culminating in the hundred years or so in terrorism as a tactic used by all sorts of people across the world for all sorts of purposes that we see coming together in 9-11. But the one really important thing about 9-11 is this amazingly impressive, and if I might use that term without glorifying it, impressive freeing of the imagination. And of course, it wasn't completely radical. As you know, in the mid-90s, there was an attempt to blow up the Twin Towers by very conventional means, which was bombs in the foundations. And of course, that didn't do the business. And so they thought very differently. But what they realised was that, yes, you could do the Twin Towers, but why not do something else as well, which was, of course, the Pentagon? Why not do the White House? I mean, the symbology if all three of those targets had been hit and successfully hit would have been even greater than what actually occurred in 9-11. So I hope that sort of explains it.
1: It really does. And I suppose it's actually quite tactically sophisticated when you think about it, because not only is it an achievement, if we say that in imagination, but they also realise that you get one shot at this because you're not going to have multiple attempts after this to then hijack more planes and take down targets. This has to be a simultaneous surprise attack on the US homeland, something that history has shown that the US is incredibly vulnerable to. Go back to Roberta wallstatter Look at her work on Pearl Harbor. Say how that this is something that the US is repeatedly vulnerable to because we don't expect that the great superpower is going to be able to be attacked by anyone lesser than them now there is a stirring of the hornet's nets there are calls for revenge after this point and there has to be retribution the world comes together everyone is american today as was the adage that went around what happens immediately to al-qaeda after this point we have the war in afghanistan that starts on October 7th? That's when the first drone strikes start to go in. Is this when we start to see al-Qaeda being targeted incredibly seriously? And do they go underground, or are they prepared to fight?
2: Okay, so I think there is a great danger in all of this to see al-Qaeda as being an instrumental organisation in its own right. Al-Qaeda is the product of geopolitics, And everything that has happened to it, and indeed it has done itself, has been for geopolitical reasons. And so one of the things that happens, which is of significance, and again, that has been sort of conveniently forgotten in history. There are two things, in fact. One is a very significant account as one of George Bush's national security advisers, who says that he went into President Bush's office the next day and he was told by Bush, give me the link with Iraq. And he said, well, I can't, there isn't one. And the response was, I want the link with Saddam Hussein. And he said, sir, there isn't one. And the point was made again that the president wanted to see the link between what happened on 9-11 and Iraq. And what that tells us, is essentially that George Bush wasn't as interested in dealing with al-Qaeda who had perpetrated this horrible deed as he was in perpetuating his own foreign policy and global political agendas, whatever they may be. of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603. Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? (laughs) Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velazquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: So this was the politics of convenience at this time as well. If you're going to have a global war on terror, then let's enshrine this in, if I remember correctly, the axis of evil which is going to include Saddam Hussein. And what is that all about, Afi? Is that as a leftover from the first Gulf War, the fact that George Bush Jr.'s father is thrown out of office after one term? He doesn't win election. I think he's the must be the only US president in history that doesn't win re-election after winning a war. And I think there's also rumours that Saddam had tried to get George Bush Sr. assassinated as well. Is this personal politics that's going on here?
2: Well, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer it. I think in all of these situations, a lot of there isn't one simple answer. There may well be an issue of personal politics, but knowing what little I know about the influences in George Bush Jr.'s government, the likes of Rumsfeld, Cheney, Uh, Wolfowitz and all those, what are commonly called the neocons, he was being run to a large extent by various agendas. And those agendas were partly ideological and very significantly commercial. So you've got this idea of the military industrial complex, which is, again, an American government, (laughs) if you like, idea. Uh, That, I think, takes on a new form. It's a neo- Military industrial concept that is taking hold of foreign policy at this stage. But the other thing that I wanted to sort of mention, the second thing that is conveniently forgotten, and it goes back to my point earlier about the idea of political asylum in Pashtunwali. The Taliban government in Kabul at the time had agreed in principle to consider releasing bin Laden to a place of safety. So there is no evidence anywhere that I've come across to suggest that Mullah Omar, who was the head of the government nominally, was at all aware, or indeed any member of the Taliban government, were aware that 9-11 was being planned, let alone being party to it. So they were willing to do what is conventional in those terms, that is to release him to a place of safety. Now, if that sounds like a bit foreign and unacceptable to the West then let's just think about what the UK does to terrorists that we have in our custody. Even if they're guilty of terrorism, we will not release them to a country where there is a danger of them being tortured or capital punishment. So we have our own ethical standards, which we do not compromise. So this is where, if the purpose was to prevent Afghanistan being, if you like a base or a launch pad for international terrorism. This could have been very easily resolved in doing that rather than what we have seen happen in the last 20 years. So what happens to Al-Qaeda, coming back to your main question, is that by attacking Afghanistan, and that, if you go back and deal with it in a little more detail, which we haven't got time for, is just basically an attempt to show the world that we're doing something in Afghanistan so that it paves the way for real interest, and that is to attack and occupy Iraq. And that process is, as you will recall, B-52s used to carpet bomb Tora Bora, the mountain range where bin Laden was holed up. And according to bin Laden's claim, we had only 6% casualties. But even if he's exaggerating by 100%, it's only 12% casualties. There was certainly a lot of al-Qaeda people who saw the 40-something-odd Americans watch them walk down the mountain. And those Americans were primarily CIA and special forces. And bin Laden boasts that you didn't dare attack us because they were outnumbered. Now, the point is that with the Americans and indeed NATO forces, including the Germans, who have some of the best mountain troops anywhere in the world... They could have within 24 hours managed to get an elite troop of people parachuted in or taken in by helicopter to give bin Laden and his supporters and his disciples a welcome as they came down to the bottom of the mountain. But no such thing was done, and they were allowed to melt away. Some of them remained in Afghanistan and were captured, imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay, and then released, and then others went off to Pakistan, including bin Laden and his deputy. So what then happens, of course, is that al-Qaeda effectively goes underground. And in 2003, in the early months of 2003, bin Laden recognises that he becomes fairly incidental to world events. Al-Qaeda hasn't done anything, not even close to nine eleven, let alone a modest terrorist attack. And so on Valentine's Day of 2003, I remember it well, he wrote a speech which basically said that it would be perfectly fine for Islamists to work in an alliance with the ungodly Bathists against the West. So it's his desperate attempt to go with this ungodly, secular, fascist sort of regime which he despised, but work on alongside them to fight the West. And that was his attempt to make al-Qaeda relevant to this focus of international affairs, which was the war in Iraq uh, that was about to unfold in the days after his speech. And it was pretty obvious to everybody what's going to happen there. So that's what gives him slowly a degree of legitimacy. But even then, nothing really happens until about 2004. Now, at the beginning of 2004, we see the emergence of this man, Zarqawi. You might remember him. He was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who, even by bin Laden's standards, even by al-Qaeda's standard, he was known as a thug and a brutal individual. And he had, in the early months of that year and before, perfected the genre of beheadings. And he was rabidly anti-Shia. And when Abu Masab al-Zaqawi wrote in October of 2004 to bin Laden asking to be a member of al-Qaeda, I was in Baghdad at the time. I remember talking to my American general and saying, this is really fascinating because bin Laden now has a choice that in some ways Hitler faced and that was opening up the ideological equivalent of the Western Front because he knows that not only will his public relations suffer because of this brutality of this man, but also he knows that he will be opening up a war against the Shia, which he can't afford to do because he wants to fight the West. But the choice he has is either to accept Zacharii or to remain irrelevant to world events. And so it takes until December of 2004 for bin Laden to reluctantly accept him as a member, because you know otherwise he continues to be irrelevant. And that's when we get a focus of al-Qaeda, if you like, labelled attacks, not of course just in Iraq, but then you get these franchises as some people have described them or uh, affiliates and other organizations you get AQIM that's the al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. you get al-Qaeda in Yemen and then you eventually get the development of al-Shabaab and then Boko Haram and other organizations erupting slowly across the globe to do their stuff but you also get as a direct consequence of the coverage of the war in Iraq, much more so than what happens in Afghanistan, certainly in the first few years, you get this locally inspired attacks, the sort of attacks we see in Madrid, the Madrid Railway attack, and then subsequently we get 7-7 and other attacks in the UK and elsewhere in, in Europe. And of course, at this stage, and we're talking about two thousand and five, six, and maybe even seven, the Americans are very curious about this domestic threat, a homegrown threat. Why? I mean, I was involved in a conference from an elite group of American civil servants, for want of a better word, who wanted to study, who wanted my help to talk to people who could help them understand why we have this homegrown terrorism issue. And they don't. Of course, we know things have changed quite considerably since then. So that is what's happening to al-Qaeda. It can't directly after 9-11 planned centrally. Even then, I'm not sure it planned 9-11 centrally. It was done by one of its major members, but not necessarily in Afghanistan somewhere else. But it is no longer able to mastermind events, but it is able to inspire events including domestic terrorism, and then you get this mushrooming of propaganda. Again, people get mesmerized by social media, which has been really well exploited by ISIS. But al-Qaeda really set the trend and was very successful, extremely successful in getting its messages out on the Internet through some very clever means on websites and so on that could be mirrored within milliseconds into tens of thousands across the world. And there was a whack a mo type of affair with the NSA, GCHQ, trying to suppress it. But we never really, as far as I'm aware, succeeded in preventing them to getting their message out, which they inevitably did. So in a nutshell, this is how we see it developing And this is very
1: much something that is a theme that continues around the world today. It's not like Al-Qaeda has disappeared in any way, shape or form. So many of these groups are still active and still working hard to derail the Western presence in parts of the Middle East and across the African continent, including in places like Mali, for example. But it's here that you also get the merging together of unhappy bedfellows of convenience. So you see as ISIS was defeated and i'm not sure how you would fit isis into this maybe as another splinter group of franchisees who now or at least until recently were working together with elements of al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb to try and defeat western presence and that may have splintered and split and terrorist groups quite often splinter and form new fracturous groups once they disagree on things but, well, maybe tell us a little bit about how we fit ISIS into this, perhaps. But also, what are the next steps for Al-Qaeda? Where do we stand in terms of the future? As we withdraw from Afghanistan, and as that debacle continues with horrendous scenes, are we going to see the reemergence of groups like ISIS, like Islamic State, and like Al-Qaeda, back into a safe haven that could be Afghanistan.
2: There's a lot you've asked there. Um, I think to help stop it being too confusing, I think it's important to go back to basics and understand the things that have driven al-Qaeda and ISIS and so on. At the ideological level, it has been the common objective of getting rid of what are perceived injustices. And I use the word perceived But in reality, they're real injustices. If you look at any state that is run by a majority Muslim government, they are, to varying degrees, corrupt, inept, and repressive. So you've got these real life injustices. And the other thing we need to remember is that in almost every case, there is an example of exploitation by the West of religious, if you like, extremism for geopolitical purposes. And I can give you examples in the case of the Mujahideen in the 1980s and so on, which led to the Taliban and, of course, al-Qaeda too. And there are many others. And I think there is considerable indirect evidence to support the view that Western proxies were funding and supporting ISIS in Syria and Iraq. There's, There's quite a lot I can go through. So, Those are the sort of things that have perpetuated these organizations. And one of the things that I don't think we fully appreciate, and I just finished in February this year, a study funded by the EU, which involved interviewing ISIS and al-Qaeda prisoners in jails in Kyrgyzstan. And I mean, one of the amazing things that we were able to achieve in that research was to make this bunch of people who are notoriously difficult to get to talk, but to get them to talk in a way that we couldn't even use half of what they told us. It was just that much information. They just told us a lot of stuff. But the one thing that came out loud and clear in almost all of these 38 cases that we interviewed, virtually I think 95% of them, was that they were disillusioned. And they were disillusioned because of the infighting. And the infighting was vicious and bloody between the ISIS and al-Qaeda affiliated groups. And the infighting within the groups was also vicious and bloody. So the primary commander of the Kyrgyz group, known as Abu Sahla, was uh, and probably still is the last time I checked, imprisoned by Jabhat al-Nusra, the group he was a commander within. So there is a very destructive element within these groups, self-destructive element, which is very easy to understand if you understand the way totalitarian ideologies work and how the mixture of totalitarian ideology and religious idealism is a caustic and explosive mixture. The point is this infighting exists and that is something we need to bear in mind if we are to try to understand what might happen in the future the other thing that i think we need to remember is that radicalization only takes place after spectacular successes and we see this with the communists it wasn't the ideologues it wasn't marx that led to radicalization it was Lenin's spectacular success in the Bolshevik Revolution, which incidentally was supported by Germany, the superpower, one of the superpowers at the time who paid for him to go there and run this revolution. Those spectacular successes, 9-11 being one of them, 2014, the ISIS declaration of the Caliphate being another. Those spectacular successes is what draws people to these organizations. now. The problem now for the radicals is what is the latest spectacular success? Well, undoubtedly, it is the Taliban's spectacular success that almost without bloodshed, they've taken over a country within weeks that the Americans took 10 times longer with huge loss of life to do. But the problem they've got is the Taliban are at least claiming and by their actions demonstrating so far that they're very different, that they're not supportive of al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda have both congratulated them, but also made some nasty comments about them. And so there is this degree of ideological shock for the first time in the Islamist extremist history. So 9-11 was a no-brainer for them. You know, they thought, wow. Baghdadi's declaration of the caliphate 30 miles outside Baghdad. Wow, that's awesome. There's no ambiguity there. This is a success. We need to follow this boy band. This is, you know, they're the best boy band in town. The Taliban have really wrecked this for any self respecting Al Qaeda or ISIS follower. You know, they've produced this spectacular success. They've got rid of the Americans, something that Al Qaeda failed to do. They have established an Islamic republic, or about to establish one, which none of them have really succeeded in. But then they are a little too compromised. They're talking about women's rights under Sharia and all that sort of stuff. The point is that it's difficult to predict until we know how these people are going to reorganize information in their heads. And they're going to do exactly what the West is doing right now, what everybody does. They're going to create political myths. They're going to present things in a different fashion. The West has successfully presented this defeat in Afghanistan, not as a geopolitical war, which is what it started off, as a setback in their project to bring about human rights and female emancipation. And one of the things that I'd like to talk to our friend Caroline about is to write a paper on the weaponization of feminism, which is the first time I think it's happened. I give you that example of how narratives have already begun to be reinvented so that history can be learnt in a particular way, rather than in the way that you and I boringly might try to deal with it in forensic terms. So I'm expecting al-Qaeda, what remains of it, and indeed ISIS, to try to make sense of this, whatever they do. And I want to just focus for a second on the question that a lot of people have been asking, and that is al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan. Now here, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit, which is always a dangerous thing in terms of predicting the future. I think that unless something radical happens in the next few weeks uh, in terms of what the Taliban do, if they have an internal coup, for example, if that doesn't happen, then there is going to be a very bloody and highly effective conflict between the Taliban and these foreign groups, ISIS and al-Qaeda. And the Taliban will be far more successful in dealing with them than the coalition, the American-led coalition and the Afghan government were over the last 20 years. And there's a whole number of reasons for that. Uh, One is the intrinsic chauvinism in the Afghan people, but particularly the Pashtun, who are primarily the Taliban. They are, above everything else, a chauvinistic people. They're very hospitable, and they don't hate foreigners, but they hate the idea of foreigners interfering in their country, just as they don't tend to interfere in other people's countries. So you've got more Pashtuns living in Pakistan than you have in Afghanistan, and whenever they have a tribal... Fight, and they have these horrible vendettas, and I know this from personal friends that i've grown up with generationally. My father was you know friends with their father and friends with their and our children are friends, and so on. These generational vendettas are never exported, so if you've got a problem in your tribal homeland and you happen to be in Pakistan as some of these families are, maybe working in the Pakistan government, you slap in a leaf pass you, go back into your tribal homeland and kill the people you need to kill, and then you come back out and resume normal life. And that's the way they operate. And these subtleties have just gone over the heads of people who are doing a lot of analysis on Afghanistan. And it's one of the many reasons why strategy on Afghanistan has been an unmitigated failure by the coalition over the last 20 years is they have failed to understand the political and strategic culture Of the Afghan people. And you don't have to have grown up like I have, you know, with these people and understand their culture. You can actually do so as an ordinary Western as long as you are willing to be open-minded and indeed unbiased about things. And this lady, Sarah Chase, who's written this book, Thieves of State, has done exactly that. And she's lived in Afghanistan and she has told several military commanders that the reason why the Taliban exist isn't because of religion. It is because the Afghan people, more so than any other people in the world, have an allergy to corruption and oppression. And the reason they came into being was simply because Mullah Umar, a very small-time village mullah, had enough when he saw not just financial corruption, but sexual exploitation of children by the warlords and that's conveniently forgotten and that's one of the reasons why the government has failed because it has indulged in widespread corruption for a very long time and that is why nobody was willing to fight for it because it was very widespread now I don't mean every single person in the government and every single official was corrupt No, there were a lot of very decent, honest people who worked genuinely hard. But as a body, as a system, it was corrupt, particularly in policing and justice terms. And that is why the Taliban primarily have a great deal of support. Now, you won't hear this by listening to the news because all of our correspondents go in to Kabul and talk to those people that have benefited from this system that have genuinely believed in the system that has led to failure. This is why in the early 2000s, Hamid Karzai was nicknamed the mayor of Kabul. They never had a remit across the country. And one of the things that I hope we can do research on, and I hope others will think about this, we need objective research. When we talk about women's rights, which I think is something that we should talk about, we should care about, Let's just see to what extent the women's rights were actually delivered in terms of education to the poor people of the villages of Afghanistan. How many of those were living above the subsistence line of food and wealth? And what we need to do is to ask ourselves the question, if we were in the position of ordinary Afghans, and we know from figures collected since 2009 that at least 111,000 civilians were killed, of which it is safe to assume the 50% were women and girls. So let's say pessimistically 50,000 women were killed during this 20-year conflict. If I were a father or a brother or an uncle, a husband of any of these women, would I given the choice of having them alive or being able to go to school, which would I choose? I would always choose the alive option. You would always choose the alive option. And this is not a choice between good and bad. It's a choice between bad and worse. And what we've delivered is a bad government.
1: Afi, thank you so much for tying all of these threads together and for showing us how Just like in the past, but deep into the future, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban look like they're going to be intertwined deep into the future. Thank you so much.
2: Pleasure.